Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing this song for the dream. I figure I'm one of the luckiest people in the world because of the company I keep from my shows. Inspirational folk making the world a better place by applying their bodies and spirits to the work. Today's Spirit in Action guest is Sarah Curie, and she has captured my heart with her superb, searching, compassionate, fearless writing in Friends Journal, articles on things like voluntary simplicity, maybe more accurately called voluntary poverty, and homeschooling, and soul-searching about Sarah's personal line in the sand about the use of violence and self-defense. Sarah Curie, her husband Ash, and the life that they choose are one of the brightest hopes I see for the future of our country. Sarah Curie joins us by phone from Argyle, Wisconsin. Sarah, I'm really delighted to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Thanks for having me, Mark. I've long listened to your show, and I'm happy to be here today. We maybe should clarify about your name right away, because the way that I first encountered you, or first was aware of encountered you, is through the wonderful writing that you've done for Friends Journal. So we're going to be talking today about three of the articles that you've had published in Friends Journal, and another one from Home Education Magazine. Your writing is so excellent, except that the name that is listed with it is Sarah's Curie, and that Sarah's written S-E-R-E-S. Curie, which I pronounce correctly because I grew up Catholic, and other people pronounce it Curie, or how do they pronounce it? Oh yeah, I've heard Kyrie, all kinds of names. I, I am aware that it, sometimes it can be a mouthful, but it's it's a spiritual name, and I also go by my given name of Sarah Curie. However, um, Sarah has kind of evolved as a spiritual name to a pen name to a name within the close circle of friends around me. So I will respond to either. And I want to mention about names. Kyrie is actually Asha's middle name that he grew up with, I guess. So I find it so interesting. I'm not sure when you actually came to the world of Quakers, but you and the Abbas family, who I assume you might know, and others, and Sandra and I, helps meet, we all took our last names. We all made a conscious decision to choose our last name. Could you say a little bit about that process, both Sarah's and Kyrie in your family? Sure. Well, when Ash and I joined together, we decided to embark with a new family name. And like you said, I've run across quite a few other families who have done this, and it's an immediate spark of connection. You know, perhaps it goes to our longing to decentralize and (laughs) shift power structures. Here we are as a new family, the Kyrie's But we like to say that it's open-sourced, so anyone's welcome to be a Kyrie. It's more of uh, the big family. 
a way of life. And we have a few friends who like to call themselves Kyrie's. And could you say a little bit more about Sarah's? Because while people know Sarah, S-E-R-E-S, the name that you often write under, is different and people don't run into that very frequently. Sarah's came to me as a spiritual name probably about 10 years ago. And with a friend who was returning from Iraq, she also wanted to change her name and shed who she was as a soldier and take on a new spiritual name. So we held a ceremony together and took a name to kind of solidify our commitment to peace and to being peaceful beings. As I reflect back on it, Sarah holds a certain place in my heart, but Sarah too, I'm like rewarmed to because I know I know lots of Sarahs. I don't I know tons of Sarahs. All my life, I've been surrounded by Sarahs, and so there is something of humility and oneness in identifying as Sarah, as well as Sarah's a more spiritual name. I think of the Roman goddess C E R E S, her counterpart in Greek mythology is Demeter. So you might be familiar with the Greek mythology of Demeter and Persephone. Demeter is the earth goddess who mourns for her daughter, Persephone, who goes into the underworld. It's what turns out to be winter, and she holds back the greenness until her daughter returns in spring. And so that's a powerful story. Wasn't there something in there about eating six seeds of a pomegranate, which is why we have six months of winter and six of warm weather? You know, Mark, it's supposed to be three pomegranate seeds, um, (laughs) but I don't know. That must be closer to the equator equator because it's definitely six seeds up here in Wisconsin. (laughs) (laughs) But you were saying... So I also think of Saris as a circle, and all things in life are circular. Saris, Saris, just Sarah with an S on the end, going round and round. Walt Whitman says, I am large, I contain multitudes, and so I am Sarah and Saris, and probably a few other names in there. <laughs> and one of the ways that your circle has broadened in the last year or so, you added another member to your family. So Mesa was born a bit over a year ago, I think. So now you have three children, and you and Ash and your three children are living in Argyle, Wisconsin, which means something to me because I was actually born in Darlington, Wisconsin. I didn't know that, Mark. (laughs) I did not know that. Yeah, i got lots of relatives down there. So it's this corner of southwestern Wisconsin. How long have you been living there? Um, We've been living here about six years, and it is a magical little place. We have 10 acres on a river, are just trying to live small. You know, we were drawn to Argyle, really, because we found this little spot that was magical and, and affordable. You know, there's almost a bullseye outside of Madison as you go farther and farther away of how things get cheaper. And knowing that our intention was always to live below a taxable line, that was kind of a compromise of living in the country, living in a little more isolated area. You know, it is a compromise. It's the thing I miss most of living in town is the community of being with Quakers. That by far is the most difficult. We used to be able to walk to the meeting house, and now that we can't do that. But we trade that for the sounds of coyotes and owls and solitude. And which river are you living on? The Pecatonica. 
So I know about the Pecatonica because, again, I'm from Darlington. My relatives are there. It used to be that each spring it would flood. Does that affect you? It does flood, and our house is really close to the river, so we watch it. We're, we're set on the hill a bit, so we don't get flooded out, but we watch it rise, and sometimes my mom will call me and say, you know, there's a flood watch in your area. I'm like, Mom, I should be calling the meteorologist letting them know about the flood watch. <laughs> There's one of my favorite stories is um, Bob LaFollette grew up in Argyle. He is the leader of the progressive movement and grew up in Argyle. There's a little museum here, the Saxton House, and I did the writing for the displays throughout it. So I got to spend some time researching Bob LaFollette. And there's a story of Bob in the spring when the ice broke up on the river. And he rode an ice flow down the river for a couple miles, supposedly. This might be in the category of tall tales, but I love the idea. <laughs> Wasn't he riding on that ice flow along with Paul Bunyan? Oh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so Argyle is where you're living in this small town out there, maybe about an hour outside of Madison. And you're a writer, amongst other things, or at least your writing has definitely impacted me. And I want to talk about three or four of the topics that you've dealt with. And since you've already referred to living below the poverty level, living on a low income, let's talk about that. And one of the things that I, I have to say is whenever you talk about living on low incomes, some people get nervous. Some people might include your parents, but in response to your article in Friends Journal, one person wrote back, it's like, wow, you're going to regret this when you get old and uh, the society has to take care of you. I imagine your parents have some doubts about this too, but maybe not. Maybe that's the mold you came from. So could you talk about how your choices towards poverty, or it's not poverty in terms of the world sense, but in terms of those in Wisconsin, the reaction that you get from other folks? Well, as you pointed out, Mark, it's not poverty on the world scale. And I know that I'm coming from a place where there is a huge safety net. My parents were teachers, and we grew up in northern Wisconsin and in an isolated area as well. So this piece isn't new to me. So I was always loved and supported and continue to be. You know, there's plenty of gifts from the grandparents and family, you know, trips to the grandparents. And we're well supported and we're educated, right? We have that under our belts that both Ash and I had the fine luxury of spending some time to just play in our heads. But, yeah, people are can question how we live in this manner and... We make deliberate choices not to spend our money on certain things. But I've always had a deep sense of social justice. Even as a child, you know, things really would stay with me and bother me and stories felt really heavy to me. And to some extent, we always are who we've been. And so this seems to me like a simple choice, like one way that I can live out my beliefs. And even... Even if it's not making a tangible effect on others, it's the representation of trying to live in solidarity with people who don't have as much and turning from materialism and excess, trying to live a life of more simplicity and you know, sucking the marrow out of life in the simple, natural ways that we can. Another reason that you list in your article, and again, the article is called Choice Poverty, it's on Friends Journal, 
you make a special point of talking about your attitudes towards paying taxes for war. I've been a war tax resistor since 1982, and so I'm very much on board with the idea. Could you talk about how you and how you and Ash came to this idea of not wanting to contribute to the military-industrial complex? Well, Ash was deployed with the National Guard in Iraq in 2003. He was really a poverty draft. You know, he grew up with the single mother with three sons, and so in order to pay for college, he needed to do something. And so he joined the military, and his experiences returning upon that was that war doesn't benefit anyone, except maybe the pocket linings of a few select individuals and corporations. Just the sum of our tax money that goes to war is so obscene. Any extravagance of what it's spent on, you know, beyond the need of what it seems a military could need, it's definitely beyond that. Now, that's not to say that I don't value taxes. I am a librarian, and so I'm aware that a certain amount of funding supports my job, supports this education and literacy in our community, and, and lots of other factors. So in some ways seems to me living below the poverty line is simplifies those choices instead of, you know, making more money and then taking a stand or not paying a certain amount of taxes. Just like, no, we'll just we'll just stay below that. <laughs> so if your librarian job all of a sudden started paying you a triple salary or something so that you actually had a taxable income, do you have a sense of how you would deal with the conundrum of paying for war taxes at that point? Well, part of my belief is that I also am not going to work a 40-hour-a-week job, regardless of the money, because I need to have time and space to do this piecework that I'm committed to as well. And sometimes that can just look like you know, working in the garden and sharing food with my neighbors. And sometimes, as you've shared in your previous editions, we went to Standing Rock. We've taken lots of trips and been involved in lots of movements. And so I need to only work part-time in order to have that space that I can be available to do piecework and to go where we're needed. Have you felt that your choice to live on this sub-poverty line income, have you felt like that was endangered at all because of what's been happening the last six years with Scott Walker and Republicans in Wisconsin and now on the national level with Donald Trump? There's all kinds of safety net things that I think are being cut wide open. So the safety net's got larger and larger holes. Does that seem to affect your choice of the future? Yeah, I am aware of that. In, in our situation of living on the land, we're slowly, slowly kind of gaining a self-sufficiency too so that I feel if those safety nets fall through in the next few years or whatever, whatever disaster is upon us, it seems as though some bubble will pop in some way and things could radically shift. We'll have food growing here. We'll have a place for people to come. We'll be able to band together with the, our own safety nets that we've created. I'd like to talk about some of the specific implementations of living on a lower income. I think it scares a lot of people. It just quite literally frightens them. And this is, a, as you make a point in your article in Friends Journal, this is a choice that you make. And when it's forced upon you, it feels very different. It, it actually has different implications in how you can deal with it. So you're choosing poverty in some way. What does that mean in terms of how your life is different than your neighbors next door whose income is 45000 a year? 
You know, I think it's a, it's a weight of what we value in life. And for me, the greatest joys, and perhaps over the years I've cultivated these as my greatest joys, but it's making food, you know, sharing a meal, being with community, making music, uh, making art, being with the children, being in nature. And so all of these things don't have a price value on them. And so perhaps people who are afraid of living in poverty, they need that money to source their happiness. But again, again, we're going back to that point that, like, this is a choice. This is a choice, and I'm coming from a privileged place, you know. My children went to Camp Woodbrook last year, Quaker camp. We can't afford that, but I have the know-how to write a scholarship and ask our Quaker meeting to help out with that fund. So we're coming from a place where we can kind of dig into some different resources because of that privilege, I think. What about television? How much television, how big of a screen television do you have at your home? We have one laptop that we share, the five of us. So we don't have television, but I feel like that doesn't mean anything now because you can access anything on the Internet, right? So I try and be very conscious of what I ingest. You know, you are what you eat. And our children, this is, you know, this is a major question of how to raise children in this technological time and how much screen time do they get, how much do they get to explore on their own, how much do we use it as a tool. I feel like, you know, the screen could be equally enriching or disabling. So they do some educational things on the computer and they, they watch about an hour a day of a show that they choose. They're really, really into animals, so primarily they watch animal things. So maybe that's a little bit different than the neighbor. I, I guess they're probably spending more time outdoors and you're spending more time with them. My sense is that by doing unschooling, by choosing poverty, one of the biggest changes is that you actually have a strong home life. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, we're very unusual in that we're together all the time. We eat three meals a day together. Yeah, our life is learning, and I almost like that term better than homeschooling or unschooling. Like, we're life learners, and I'm right there in the mix with them. In terms of poverty, do you get reactions from your extended families, both Ash's family and your family, Sarah? Do they have doubts about what you're doing? Yes, I think, you know, we've always been kind of (laughs) the black sheep lovingly. They're a wonderful network of people. And, you know, they are constantly sending things our way, bidden or unbidden, like, hey, do you guys need a couch? Like, they know we're not out buying a couch. Do you guys want this? Do you guys want that? And sometimes we don't want it. Like, no thanks. We don't need another screen. But for instance, my parents were selling a car and they sold it to us for a really good price. And so, you know, we're able to have a couple set of wheels, which We had some nuns from Honduras come stay with us who were interviewed on your program a year or two ago as well, Mark, and they were like, you own cars? (laughs) You eat meat? (laughs) So it's a different breed of poverty. Most people have special doubts about a lower income because you have kids. If it's just two adults, you've made the choice, that's fine. But you shouldn't do it to your kids is the implication. Of course, I grew up in a family with 12 kids and (laughs) hand-me-downs and all the other things that people look at with such 
such horror were just part of my life, and I would not say I had any hardship that way. I consider myself rich in how I grew up. Have you gotten that feedback with respect to your kids? I've heard people who said, oh, you don't have money for a television. Here, here's a television. Here you can have a few televisions and you can have all these other things that you don't really want for your kids. Right, right. You know, I I just feel like our children have such a rich life. They have so many amazing people in their lives who, you know, I could I just sit back and friends come over and they share instruments or tales with the kids and I don't feel like they need for anything. And I'm also aware that the standard two children in an American family can easily, easily have a larger footprint than eight or ten children in a family in a third world country, easily. So my children, I don't feel like they lack for much. As they get older, I see that being involved with things is very costly, you know, different clubs or groups or lessons that they want to be part of, and so... We have to pick and choose a bit like that. Like my daughter desperately wants a horse. It's her biggest dream. And we live in the country, so why don't we have a horse? So not only are we choosing not to have some extra screens or a new car, we're, we're choosing not to have a horse. And that's really difficult for her to understand. We can't afford a horse. So we have worked out a scenario where she helps an elderly woman in our community three days a week with her horses. And so kind of had to come up with a creative response to that need and that want. And ultimately, it ends up that we're helping someone else. She still wants her own horse, but she's got a long life ahead of her. Maybe she can work that out. (laughs) In terms of wanting your own, I think that there is possibly... I would describe it as a kind of a sickness in American society. We've got to have our own. Uh, You mentioned, Sarah, that you work at a library. Libraries are there so that people can read books or listen to music or do whatever they do these days at libraries, as opposed to having to own a copy of the book themselves. I've always been amazed by the people who felt like they had to buy a copy of the book so they could read it, and then they'd have it on their shelves and never look at it again. It's like, well, you could have checked that out from the library and, you know, a hundred other people could read the same book. But there is something in the American psyche, which I think it's insular, it it cuts us off from other people, which says, I've got to have my own. Now, how much is that less operational in your life, in yours and Ash's and Finn, Leaf's and Mesa's lives? Oh, I absolutely agree with you on libraries. They are such a gem of community sharing and resource. And libraries, I feel like this is a whole other topic, but libraries are at this junction of evolution and what can we provide our communities. And we can lend things beyond books and DVDs and media. So, for instance, our library in Argyle, we're starting a seed library this year. People can check out seeds, grow them in their gardens, harvest the seeds, bring them back, and we're going to have a community bank of seeds with education and literature around that so that they're well-equipped to do this. But it doesn't stop there. We could lend out tools. We could lend out cooking equipment. In our library, we have some space constraints. I don't have a tool shed yet. But we are building a network with people in our community who are like-minded of just farm tools. Do we all need to own a wood splitter? Do we all need to own a tractor? No, no, we don't. 
So what can we share? And I think that that talks exactly to the difference between this individual orientation and the community orientation. I understand that the way it used to be in Europe is you'd have people largely living in cities who were packed close together. But then you just walked two blocks and then you were in the country. You were by the trees. And right now, and I'm guilty of this because I live six miles outside of Eau Claire, we own a couple acres and we're surrounded by woods. So I have my personal state park, if you will. And we think that that's necessary because we can't trust to work with community. How big is that issue in Argyle, this small town in southwestern Wisconsin where you and Ash live? How difficult is it to get the community to think community-minded? You know, I've heard this time called as like the second back-to-the-land movement. You know, there was a big movement of people in the late 60s and 70s, and some of them have remained on the land, and it has been very fruitful, and a lot of people left. But we're, we're at a different place where we're coming, we're YouTube farming, you know. We have a network of people, and there's listservs. I'm on an amazing listserv of women farmers where you can easily post something like, you know, I have excess turnips. Does anybody want to trade? Or I have a sick cow. What should I do? So I think, again, going back to technology as like how we can use it as as a godly resource, and that is is sharing these ideas and making community smaller, even if we're separated by farms. And the other thing is, just like <laughs> the name Kyrie is open source, this land, from the very beginning, Ash and I purchased it with the intention of having people here, people who, for whatever reasons, don't have their own land. We want this to be a community space, and we've had plenty of veterans who have come and stayed with us, stayed with us for months, lived at different places on the property, and that helps to share the burden, too, because with three kids and farm animals and garden, and you know, Ash and I alone can't do it all. That's why you have three indentured children, servants. (laughs) They're starting to become useful. It's really amazing. (laughs) Well, we're going to talk more about this. I was specifically speaking there with Sarah Curie about her article, Choice Poverty, which was in Friends Journal back in December 1st of 2014. I do have a link to it on the Northern Spirit Radio website, so northernspiritradio.org. And this is a Northern Spirit Radio production called Spirit in Action. On that site, we have 11 and a half years of our programs for free listening and download. It's part of the common domain to listen to these programs. And there's so many inspirational voices of people like Sarah and Ash who are making this a better world. Also on the site, you'll find a place to post comments. And we do love it when you post a comment when you visit because we love two-way communication. It's not enough for one person to stand and proclaim, we need your voice in the mix. So please post a comment when you visit. There's also a place to donate. This is full-time work. If you click on donate when you come, you'll make this possible because it's not corporations and it's not the government that's subsidizing this work. It's because you participate in spreading the message for so many good people. Again, we're with Sarah, also known as Sarah's Curie, 
and you'll find how to spell that and a link on Northern Spirit Radio. She has a sometimes website where she posts her writing. She's done so much beautiful writing, and I found a wealth of it in the Friends Journal, which is a national Quaker publication. Just really wonderful articles in there. But you can find some of her other articles, including one from Friends Journal, but also a few others from Home Education Magazine on her website, Curie Elation. And there's a little pun there. It's curieelation.wordpress.com is where you'll find her. It's just some great articles, and we'll talk about one of those later from Home Education Magazine as well. I want to continue a little bit, Sarah, talking with you about choice poverty, how that leads into unschooling, homeschooling, life schooling. Because one of the implications of your choice of living on a lesser income, of working maybe 15 hours a week outside the home, is that you do have enough time to spend with your kids. Could you talk a little bit about how this choice came upon you? Because after all, you're trained in education. You could be working in the school system full time too. Well, we had our children to enjoy them and to be with them and to use this time with them also, I guess, as another work of social justice. Sometimes, you know, there's an argument, how many children should one have? (laughs) The population is already booming. I like to say, oh, we're we're quiverers for peace. (laughs) We're going to do this very intentionally, raise these children, and inshallah, it will turn out well. They're amazing. They're amazing beings. And I meet a lot of amazing children in the homeschooling world. You know, it it was really an extension of being with our children when they were already young that we decided to just carry that on through the rest of their education. My college education, I finished at Fairhaven College, which was in Bellingham, Washington, and it's an interdisciplinary school that in some ways really spoiled me on other education because it was so... It really just allowed one to choose a goal in mind, and my goal, my concentration during that time was local living to create global solutions. And so you start with a concentration, and then you just explore. You take classes and um, that you think will help you answer that question. I came out of there, it informed this later work. Absolutely, that was integral. And it also made it so that I could never send my child to sit in a desk <laughs> all day. If I, have, if I have the means and the privilege to not, you know, I'm in a very unique situation that Ash and I are both able to share our time to educate the children. I assume that you grew up sitting in a desk in a school. That's certainly what happened to me. And I'd say that it worked for me, and actually it worked for my son very well too. Though there was one point, because we have friends who are homeschoolers, who are life schoolers, that he said, oh, I want to do that too. So it worked for me, it worked for my son, and maybe it worked for you growing up. But you feel very clear that this would not be a good thing to do to your kids. So are there some echoes from your childhood that said, you know, this was a a bad thing to do to me? Well, my parents are public educators, and they're very committed to public education. So when I first started homeschooling my children, there was a lot of questions between us, and I, I think in some ways it was hurtful towards them. But ultimately, they also taught me a lot about homeschooling. They were very intentional parents, reading a lot to us, taking us on a lot of trips. You know, summer break would come around, and 
we would go and take the Lewis and Clark Trail. You know, we'd drive that or go to Gettysburg. And so in so many ways, who I am as a homeschooling teacher is because of them. And my time in school was, was not traumatic, is not as traumatic as I know some people's experiences have been. But I also wonder what projects or undertakings I could have taken with more space. You know, I loved being in the woods. What would have happened if I was in the woods beyond the 3.30 to 5.30 window that I was allowed to be? I loved sewing. I loved doing art. In high school, I'd come home, and I'd go into my sewing room, and I made quilts, and I sewed crazy clothes. Like, what else could I have made with that time? Twelve years is just a really long time to be in an institution for anyone. I think a lot of people are just not aware of how much time is spent ineffectually in a classroom because everybody has to march at the same pace and teacher has to do crowd control. You know, when you're dealing with 15, 20, 30 people, it's a challenge to keep them all moving together. I felt this, particularly when I was in high school, I remember noticing that, yeah, I'm way with the teacher, I'm way ahead, we could go twice as fast and that would be fine for me, but I had to go at half speed. Uh, Do you find with your kids that they go at the full speed that they're ready for in the home, as opposed to when you were subbing in schools, uh, the speed that kids would learn at? Absolutely. I mean, homeschooling, it's this one-on-one education. And so the school day is really condensed. We do book work, but it only takes us like an hour or two every morning. And then we're done because it's the day is really boiled down when you take out of a lot of factors of, yeah, just shuttling around herds of children. There's really been a homeschool revolution in the last few years. I don't know for sure what percentage of the population it is. I think three five, eight, somewhere in there. But there used to be this concern, right, of, well, how are homeschooled children going to be socialized? There's so many homeschool activities going on. There's classes or gatherings or opportunities literally every day of the week. And that that's speaking from our, our rural place. So the children are often with other people. And it's really heartening to see the diversity of how children play when they're not pigeonholed into grades because, you know, you're spending, when else do I spend my entire day with 30 other 33-year-olds, you know? That never (laughs) happens. Um, But the older ones are playing with the younger ones. My 11-year-old, she was just hanging out with a group of mixed-gender kids the other day, and I was like, what were you guys talking about? She's like, oh, We were talking about our puberties, like comparing (laughs) notes on puberty. (laughs) That certainly did not happen to me in public school. (laughs) No, they're certainly socialized. Actually, in sixth grade, I remember at recess going outside, and here were Trudy and Brian and Lee who were gathered together looking at a book. And so what what are you looking at? And it was a book, something essentially would be a textbook on sex, you know, about sex education kind of thing. And they're looking at it, and I'm kind of like, why are you interested in that? I wasn't hormonally ready for it yet. <laughs> but I, there, there were some people at school doing that. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a whole nother uh, transition. <laughs> 
Well, let's talk about what might be perceived of and is certainly criticized as a downside of homeschooling, of unschooling, of life schooling, as you call it. You mentioned in one of your articles, I think it's the Friends Journal article, Quakers and Unschooling, which is from March of 2014. I have a link on NorthernSpiritRadio.org for those who want to read it, and I recommend it highly. These are some really wonderful articles that Sarah Curie or Sarah's Curie has written. In it, you talk about part of the evolution of public schools, what we know in the U.S. as public schools, that this was considered a step forward because... A lot of people weren't getting any education before that. How do you look at the prehistory of public schools and what we have now and what affects this move towards private schooling, which is homeschooling, I guess might be considered private schooling, how that affects what's available to the general population? Well, first let me say that my sympathies are with teachers. I've spent a lot of time in classrooms and I still communicate a lot with educators and working at the library. They have more constraints, standardized constraints, than I think they ever have before. I know my mom told me that when she got her first classroom in 1971, they gave her a key to the door, and that was it. And the class beyond that was to her design, you know, for better or worse, right? But when there's standardized testing and all of the schoolwork preceding that is really just to get kids to excel in these very limited testing ways, I feel like so many of their skills are being extinguished. When I worked in the schools, I saw kids who were really into animals, really into cars, and their strengths were not honored. They were put in special classes and had a stigma around them that could last, be very long-lasting. So I think not everyone is going to be able to homeschool and not everyone should homeschool. But if we could create schools that are smaller, more diversified in maybe that class range again, like looking at one-room schoolhouses as an, as an interesting model of different ages and abilities all together. And the learning has to be more experimental. we got to get out of the brick walls and we have to get into the community. You know, how are we supposed to ask people to be responsible community citizens when they've never really, they've never really partaken in community work or activism in that whole institutional period that they've been in school? Schools just, they don't extend in that way, and that is a major resource of how we could expand our heart work and group of people. The privatization of education is a struggle that's going on not only in Wisconsin where Scott Walker and the voucher system was pioneered, I think, here. And then nationally, I think they're trying to do the same kind of thing. Nationwide, they're trying to make it possible for people to say, well, I don't want to go to the public school. I want to go to the private school. You'll give me some money from the government, and that'll cover part of the cost. How do you look on that movement? Well, from a homeschooling standpoint, Wisconsin is a gem in homeschooling, and a lot of people will move here, actually, to homeschool because we're very, there's a lot of freedom. We register and we count attendance days, but we don't have any checks and balances with the school's system. In other states, you get funding for homeschooling. 
the same amount of money that, you know, your child would get allotted to them for going to the school. So there, there is certainly a draw to have that money. Oh, you know, that would pay for the lessons. That would pay for the extra classes. That could pay for some books. But as a homeschooling community in Wisconsin, we have always chosen not to do that because we want still to have that autonomy in teaching our children. So how does this extend to the charter schools? It's tricky because I've, I've heard of a few instances where children who have gone to charter schools have bloomed. They've been able to have a different experience, and it was fruitful for them. But even without knowing all the details, I feel hesitant to outsource our children's education to essentially what's going to be corporations who are in it to make money. Could you talk a little bit, Sarah, about the homeschooling groups that you've been part of, that you are part of? What's their composition? How many of them are on the hippie end of the scale, the conservative Christian end of the scale, various components? I think it's one of the places where there are some crossroads between different folks. Absolutely. And similar to the home birthing community, which is a lot of the same people, or you know, natural foods, you go so full circle that you end up meeting on both sides. The homeschooling community absolutely contains people on both ends of, you know, I guess the political spectrum. But what unites us, I think, is people who are trying to live intentionally and in many ways people who are trying to live godly, whatever name they want to give it. Well, since you bring that up, let's talk a little bit about you and Ash. Clearly, you attend Madison Friends Meeting, so you're Quakers. Did either of you grow up Quaker? How did you end up with this strange little subsection of the American population? Well, actually, Ash's dad was a Quaker, so maybe you could say he was a born Quaker, but he wasn't raised in the Quaker meeting. We both came to it later, became convinced Quakers. In about 2007, we were living in Bellingham, Washington, where I was doing my work at Fairhaven, and we were very involved with the war resistance movement, and Ash had returned from Iraq, and we were working with veterans, and we were working with people who were being stop-lost and not wanting to return, and at that Bellingham corridor, of going into Canada, there was quite a few war resistors going up to Vancouver. And so we became involved with working with that. And we're already spiritual in nature, and I had grown up in a Christian church. But the people who were aiding with that work were Quakers. It stopped me in my tracks because in all my experience being involved in churches, honestly, I hadn't seen work in the community that reflected the tenets that I was hearing in the Bible or in the church. I just, it seemed so compartmentalized, you know, this, or very insular, this community of work in a church. And here were people from a faith community who were going out, doing work, doing real work, doing serious work, doing work that was against the law, that had consequences. And so first meeting those people and then going to a meeting It was home. It was just home. And since then, it's been such a great vessel for our family. You know, perhaps Ash and I don't have 100% of the same thoughts about God, but Quaker meeting is a, a vessel that we can both be in and explore these things together still. 
and also as a support network for this community activism. It's just so much richer to have it rooted in God for me. We've been involved in three different meetings, and now you know, our permanent home residence is Madison Meeting, and they've supported us in our work and the larger Quaker family of the nation and the world and, you know, Friends Journal and Spirit Radio. It's just, it seems so fluid to take our beliefs and put them into action in this way. And Sarah, what kind of Christian did you grow up? Because, I mean, there's an awful lot of varieties. When you say Christian, that certainly can go from a fundamentalist Southern Baptist to a UCC, United Church of Christ, where they tend to be very liberal. I mean, there's a a vast span. What kind of experience did you have? I grew up going to a faith evangelical free church, which was very Bible literal. I'm very grateful for that foundation of teaching me the Bible and the Bible stories and also for teaching me how do you carve out a life where spirituality is part of your life, you know? How do you make it so it's a prayerful life? Well, it comes very naturally to me to pray, you know, before meals. We spend some time in silence before we eat, but to have the shape of a religious life, that's given me that structure. But Again, I just didn't see that community activism coming from the church. Like, I always joke that, like, you know, prayer circles are, there's not really much difference between a prayer circle and a gossip circle. (laughs) 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 In some ways. (laughs) Um, And I grew up in, in a community where the high school was the Native American Reservation High School as well. We had major social justice issues going on. I never heard about that once. I never heard it addressed. Well, there's one more thing that we want to talk about. And again, we're visiting today with Sarah, also known as Sarah's Curie. And Sarah's is spelled S-E-R-E-S. Curie is a word I learned growing up as Catholic. And God with us, K-Y-R-I-E. And you'll find some of her writings out on curieelation.wordpress.com. There's a link on nordenspiritradio.org. You don't have to memorize all of these things, folks. So please come and check them out. And I'll have links to three articles in Friends Journal. She is such an excellent writer and in very few words conveys immense depth of knowledge. So thank you for those writings, Sarah. But right now let's talk about one of them that we've just glanced at. Guns and Pepper Spray was an article that you wrote. in. It was published in February of 2016 in Friends Journal. You talk about your own wrestling. And this is, by the way, where I happen to think that Quakers excel we have the freedom to wrestle. You don't have to just swallow any dictum. You wrestle with issues, questions. And this article is a premier piece of wrestling with how do you participate in or not participate in violence. One of the things that you start with, Sarah, is talking about your experiential learning about how many insects or what level of insect or animal killing you were comfortable with. Could you just say what that is? It's in the article, but why don't you just relate that? Sure. Thanks, Mark. I was just reminiscing about, as a child, I kind of played this game where I'd squish bugs, and what did that feel like? And you can quite easily slap a mosquito, right? That there's not a lot of uh, 
there's not a lot of moral feedback from that. But then as things get larger, you know, you feel something. I feel some resistance. You know, you go fishing and you cut a worm in half and it's kind of weird, but they're both wiggling. And, you know, you can pull legs off of a daddy long legs and he still moves. And how does that feel? I remember one day I, I squished a snail with a rock and I smashed it. And um, I went too far. That didn't feel good to me. That was my line, the snail. So the story about pepper spray is, became parallel because I had been camping. I had a situation where I was camping alone. We have a van again, a little van that before we bought our farm, we were living out of that for about six months. So we've often used that to travel and keep our costs down. All five of us will sleep in it. It's got two beds. And I was at a training, and so I was camping by myself in the van again. And there was a group of inebriated men, and they were outside of the van, you know, trying to get in, trying to look in, knocking at the windows. I had the curtains drawn, so they couldn't see me, but I was keenly aware of their presence, and I was scared to death. And I, of course, had no weapon with me, had a cell phone, and they left in the morning light, I thought. Oh, they're probably just drunk and silly, hopefully. But what could I have done? What could I have done? So thus started this question of, well, maybe maybe I should get some pepper spray. Maybe that could be like a middle way. I will never use a gun, but maybe I could use pepper spray. And so I purchased some, and it felt so weighty and unusual for me to make this purchase. And I've had it, and I've deliberated over it, and I've come to the conclusion that I don't think I could use that either. There were definitely some emotional responses to your article in Friends Journal. Mostly Quakers are on this pacifist way of thinking, so that wasn't terribly controversial. But one of the things that is so controversial for us that we each have to wrestle with ourselves is the idea about self-defense. I find for myself, Sarah, that not defending myself is easier to think about than not defending my wife or my son, when, particularly when he was little, that seeing other people injured is much harder for me than just taking it. I have an experience when I was in eighth grade where I just let someone hit me and I, I just looked at him and said, so now you're going to get in more trouble for that. Why do you want to do that? That's silly. And just walked away and his mouth was hanging open. It's, that's the one reaction he didn't expect. I was neither defensive nor aggressive. So for myself, I find it easy. How do you react when you think of someone attacking your, your one-year-old child, Mesa? Well, of course, every situation is going to be different. And, you know, I don't deny that there's an animal self in us as well. I might just be mama bear. Absolutely. But I would say in many situations, the violence is going to have had a lead up. And so that's where the work is, right? That's where the seed is. And how can we approach that part peacefully? How can we... You know, I've kind of studied the tenets of nonviolent communication. How can we disable the bomb before it goes off? And I know people have asked us as Quakers, well, well, what's your take on ISIS? That's terrorists. They're doing terrible things. They're doing terrible things. Absolutely. But what could we do for them so that they didn't want to do terrible things? What could we have done beforehand? What can we still do? What, what are their needs? 
they have some serious needs that are not being met that would make someone make these drastic, violent measures. We have to start before the violence happens. There's so much more we could talk about, Sarah, and I really would love to. I'll I'll look forward to the opportunities to sit down with you and Ash and talk in the future. We can get together in person. You're not that far away. As a matter of fact, you only live, what, less than 15, 20 miles away from one of my stepsons. And so we get down that way. We'll have to drop in. That'd be wonderful. In the meantime, folks, I really encourage you to follow the links that I have on the NordenSpiritRadio.org site and read Sarah's articles. We've scratched the surface here, and she says an incredible amount in very small number of words in all three of those articles. And I'll also link to our article that she wrote for Home Education Magazine. That article was called One Foot In, One Foot Out, her experience of being a substitute teacher when she was teaching her children at home and was learning with her children at home. All wonderful articles and so beautifully put. And you really have a gift there. It's not surprising to me that you choose now to, for your professional work life to hang around with books. You certainly have the gift. Well, thank you. I, I'm a prolific reader, so I guess some of it filters out into writing on the other end. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. It was a great conversation. Again, there's links to Sarah and her writings, both on Friends Journal, the WordPress site that she has, com, and Home Education Magazine. I encourage you to get familiar with what she's written and drop in at the Argyle Library sometime when she's working there. I'm sure she'll lead you to some good sources. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production help with today's program, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.